On today's podcast, we bring you part two of a conversation between Bob Wiley and future Hall of Famer Joe Thomas and what he's learned about pass protection. It really goes beyond that. You get to hear exactly how a professional of his caliber prepares for games and how he looks at being coached as well. So a lot to learn from this one here. And as I mentioned before, I met Bob Wiley last year at Lawrence First and Goal Clinic, which kicks off today. Lawrence First and Goal has done a tremendous job in raising funds for pediatric brain tumor research and cancer services. They go out there and they help a lot of families who have children who have cancer, and it's something that we really need your help for. Go to lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com to register. We have individual passes. We have staff passes. We have premium passes. Uh, But I promise you, it is an incredible lineup. These guys come to deliver, both because this is such a good cause, and truthfully, it's become a little bit of a star search. There's coaches in that audience who are looking at the presenters and saying, can this guy fit with me in the future, and really evaluating some of the coaching talent that's out there. So uh, these guys, as I said, deliver. Come to Lawrence First and Go LFGF 2022.coachesclinic.com. Here's a conversation between Joe Thomas and Bob Wiley at last year's Cool Clinic. Cool Clinic will be released next week, and I'll have more information about that soon. Enjoy the conversation. Talk about uh, independent hands and two-hand punching. Uh, talk about which, which one, you know, I always liked independent hands, right? You talked about that, you will myself, okay? When do you use independent hands, and when would you use a two-hand punch if it was given to you? What- so, I would say one of the big mistakes that I see young coaches make is teaching guys to punch with two hands at the same time. It never happens. <laughs> what you want is you want hands to work independently of each other. Basically, each hand has its own brain. It's got its own computer. Because each one has to react differently depending on what the defender does to you. If you punch with two hands, it only takes the defender one hand to knock both of those down. So now every pass rush move is in his arsenal is available to him when you're punching with two hands. He can chop. He can, he can chop and grab the back of your pad. He can swipe with two hands. You know, we'd call this the side scissors. He can knock them both down at the same time. He can lift them up. He can stab, and his one arm is going to be longer than both of your two arms. So he really can do whatever he wants to you, and you're going to get beat. And when you punch with two hands, you're the most likely to punch with hands and follow with your shoulders and your upper body, which is what gets you out of balance which is what gets you to fall on your face. It's everything that bad that can possibly happen to an offensive lineman happens after you try to punch with two hands and a defender either swims or knocks them down or you just miss. Like two-hand punching, I can't ever think, to be totally honest, Bob, I can't think of a situation where I would ever two-hand punch somebody. Now, I might two-hand grab them, like if I'm getting a bull rush, and somebody's bull rushing me, maybe I might two-hand grab them at the same time to do the Hamilton and to lift them up, or I might knock them down with two hands if I, I feel like he's leaning on me. Um, but to try to create power with two-hand punching, 
it really has no place in an offensive lineman's tool belt. It does nothing. You're never going to be able to punch a defensive lineman with two hands hard enough to stop their pass rush. There's no offensive lineman, even Larry Allen, probably wasn't strong enough to be able to take both hands and to just punch a guy to the ground every single time. And he's the strongest offensive lineman I think that ever lived. Because when you put so much force behind a two-hand punch that it would be able to stop a 300-pound man, uh, science says that your momentum from punching that hard is going, if you miss, is going to lead you to lean your shoulders forward and to get you out of balance and get you onto your toes. And so that's why punching independently is so important. It's like a boxer. You ever seen a boxer punch somebody with two hands? No, it's one hand. It's like this. Those are hands that are working independently, right? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Like these are, this is how your hands should work because like we talked about earlier, your hands are merely making the connection from the defender to your lower body because that's where the power and that's where the force is created. It's created from your feet up through your hips into your core. And then you're able to use that power that you create from the ground up connected through your hands and your arms into your opponent to be able to control that opponent. Now, as the left tackle, what hand would you just randomly, what hand would you use most? Would it be the outside hand? I'm trying to get the outside hand. Was it the inside hand? The inside hand is the most important. Now that doesn't mean you don't use your outside hand, but the inside hand is, is everything. It's, it's what saves you when they try to run an inside move. If, if my hands are like this and the defender is just doing a basic, you know, slap rip to the inside. Now what my inside hand does is it circles around like this and then it grabs that, the area I always tried to, to hit was sort of that upper arm bicep area because if I was making contact here, it was going to slide up and I was going to grab their shoulder pad because that's the ideal place to grab a defensive lineman arm is right here in their shoulder pad where their jersey gives you a nice little handle, right? And the reason I aimed here and not here was because it built in a margin of error. You hear a lot of coaches talk about, you know, trying to punch that inside chest plate. That's too tight because if I try to punch that inside chest plate, if I hit it every time, great. But I don't know any offensive tackles who are perfect. I don't know any offensive uh, linemen that are perfect. And so if I aim for that inside chest plate and that defender knocks my hands just a little bit, now I'm on the outside chest plate. And now I've been beat to the inside. If I'm over here and I'm aiming right here and I hit my target, now I can grab here. If I aim here and that defensive lineman is making an inside move and he knocks my hands two or three inches, now I'm on that inside chest plate and I'm still, still safe. So you're building in a margin of error when you're aiming here versus here with that inside hand. And the inside hand is the most important hand by far because that's what enables you to control that defensive lineman. Now the outside hand, that can be important too, but a lot of times that's important for giving the defender the idea that you're punching him and getting him to trigger his hands. So that's what we talk about in independent hands, right? Defensive lineman, a lot of times you see him do those defensive, those fancy karate drills, right? They're always using both hands at the same time, right? So if a defender is trying to chop or side scissors your hands, 
and you give him the left hand or the outside hand as a left tackle and he knocks that down, this is exactly what happens. Boom. And now because he's triggered both his hands at the same time to knock my hand down, now he's exposed his chest to my inside hand. I'm able to stay square as he knocks this hand down and to put my inside hand wherever I want on that defender because he is now un he, he has now no hands left to defend his chest, his shoulder pads from my inside hand. So a lot of times that's what I would do is I would trigger my outside hand or I would maybe trigger just my inside hand and then allow my outside hand once I make contact to now grab that chest plate or wherever I need to, but working those hands independently, giving them something to look at and to try to trigger their hands with, with my outside hand, and then making sure that my inside hand never, never, ever got beat because if your outside hand gets knocked down, it's okay, you can recover. If your inside hand gets knocked down, the shortest path to the quarterback is through your inside. Now, the, the outside hand, uh, when you're studying the defenders, Joe, did you study whether that defender was a reactive rusher? So you knew if you put my, he was going to knock it down and I go outside, or if I took both hands out, that uh, he was going to try to knock them and spin inside, okay? And the reactive guy, when you study, was he a reactive guy or was he more of a power guy? Yeah, absolutely. You're studying and you're trying to figure out, like, what does this guy like to do? What does he want to do from a pass rush standpoint? You see the guys that are really big hand guys, like the, the Joey and Nick Bosa guys, the Tom Bahali when I was playing. Like, these are guys that they spend a lot of time in the offseason with the pass rush gurus, with the karate guys, and they're always focused on where is the hands. They're trying to knock your hands down all the time. If that's the type of guy I'm going against, and you can pull up Joey Bosa film when I played him when he was a younger player, all I would do is I would set back and I would show him my outside hand, and then he has trained for 20 years of his life boom, trigger my hands. I'm going to try to do the karate chop. And as soon as he, I let him knock that hand down, I grab him with this hand and it's over. Like I knew exactly the type of player that they were, they were, if they were a guy that was always trying to knock my hands down, or if they were a guy that was just going to run into me and try to bull rush me and try to rip up the field. Or if he was just a spin guy, like you knew what type of a guy he was and the guys that are the most susceptible to, to giving him that outside hand flash or that outside hand cheese, like we used to say, like those are the hand guys, the guys that are always trying to knock my hands down, right? You don't want to flash a guy that's going to bull rush you because if you're doing this and he's bull rushing you, now you're back on your heels, right? That, that A bull rush guy is a guy that you want to kind of be ready for that bull rush. You want to be lower in your set. You want to be lower in your hips and you don't want to flash him. The guys that you want to flash or give them the outside hand cheese are guys that are big hand guys that always want to knock your hands down. What, what about, how would you handle, the best advice you can give the young tackles for handling the spin move? The most important thing for the spin move is to stay square. And it's to, we would call it like circle punch your inside hand. So if somebody's rushing up the field and going to the inside, you know, I've, I've had coaches that will teach you to like do this type of punch, but way Freeney's spinning like a whirling dervish there's no way your hands are fast enough to go like this on him to keep him in front of you so what we would do is basically you're just catching the spin move with your inside hand so you're setting back most important thing is you're keeping this outside shoulder square almost beyond square in your mind you're thinking beyond square because when you think beyond square it's square when you think square it's open so I was thinking beyond square when I play against Freeney 
And then as soon as I saw that spin move, I wasn't punching it. Because if you punch it, that's when he spins and he's past you. What I was doing was I was circling this inside arm and I was catching it. Because when he would try to spin and I'd go like this, usually what would happen is by the time I went like this, his chest was now all the way facing this way. And now I was putting my hand on his chest or I was putting my hand on his shoulder pad. And then I could take this other hand and I could kind of squeeze him out and kind of slow down that spin. Or now I could get back and control him. But the key, the two things to think about when you got a guy that's spinning are even be beyond square with my outside shoulder and then circle and catch with that inside arm. So you're actually, you're actually taking your hands off the guy. Yeah. Putting them on later. Right. Yeah. You don't want your hands on the guy when he's spinning because that's how you lose. Like you watch anybody that's gotten beat by the spin, they feel like they're in great shape. Like, oh, look, got my hands on them. But the part that your hands are on now is going like this. So how are you going to catch back up to them, right? And the best guys that spin, they're not spinning in place. Like if you ever watched Dwight Freeney, he, he would start his spin right here and then he would finish spinning over here. So not only do you have to move your hands, but you got to move your feet. Because if he was just spinning in place, it'd be easy. Oh, I missed. Oh, now I just do this and I got my hands back on him. But you're starting here and now he's spinning and now he's on your backside by the time he's done spinning and he's in the quarterback's lap. On a, on a, on a pass rusher, Joe, that is making, he's going inside on you, okay? He starts the inside move. What what are your feet doing? You know what I mean? There's there's different schools of taught on, on how you're moving your feet when the guy's making the inside move. So I'll take you through the minutia. The thing that I would always think about that when I was playing offensive tackle, I was always trying to think of um, cues. And I took the from my track and field background because when I was a shot putter, when I was a discus thrower, as we were trying to improve our technique which you're talking about like tiny little bits of improvement inches and tiny little bits of changes in your technique that aren't even perceivable to the human eye. You'd have to watch it back in slow motion on video to be able to see the differences, but it allows you to create more force in the shot put and to create more acceleration. And in football, it allows you to keep your balance and you create a little bit more power. And so, when I was thinking of these cues, which were things that in your mind you could think about while you were doing a pass set or you're throwing the shot put that would cue your body to do something. And so my cue when I was moving to the inside on an inside pass rush was I always wanted to think about taking my inside shoe and I wanted to think about picking up the outside of my inside foot. So if these were my two feet as a left tackle, and I don't know what it looks like here because we're on a Zoom here, but if this is my inside foot, I wanted to pick up the outside of my inside foot and I wanted to gain ground like that because it did the most important thing when you're handling an inside move. And that keeps your weight distributed to your outside foot. So trying to describe it. I'm describing it correctly, but it might be a little bit confusing thinking about it. But when I'm going to the inside against an inside move, I want my weight on my outside foot because in order to move quickly to the inside, I need to be able to push off quickly against my outside foot. And the only way I can push off against any foot is if I have the majority of my weight on that foot. So if you think about it like that, 
by picking up the outside of my inside foot and gaining ground with my knee to the inside, I was able to gain ground, you know, and this is why hip mobility is really important because if you look at your hip joint or your hip socket, your hips going like this, as you're gaining that ground with your inside foot and it's keeping your weight to your outside foot, allowing you to push off the inside of your outside foot. Now that's, that's a lot of insides and outsides, but when you think about it, if you're doing the old mirror dodge drill, think about where the, the weight distribution in the center of gravity is on an offensive lineman. If I'm doing mirror dodge and my hands are my, are, are my center of gravity, if the player makes this move, what do I want that center of gravity to do? I want it to be here, right? So that I can move this way. Now, if he changes direction, what do I have to do? I have to move that center of gravity here. And so now my shoulder angle changes. Now the weight on my feet change. And now if I'm gonna go back this way, I need to have this foot, this foot now is like this and it rolls this knee to the inside. And now my weight is on the inside of this leg. And now this foot is gonna get picked up like this and gain ground like this, right? So it's like that. And then now it's the same thing when they go the other way, right? But the most important thing is thinking about that shoe. And that's how I would always cue myself because if you pick up the outside of the foot that's leading, if he's like making that inside move, it's impossible to have your weight outside to have your weight distributed wrong if the first thing you do is this, and it's impossible to roll over that foot. You see guys that struggle against counter moves because when they get an inside move, the first thing they do is, this <laughs> is so hard on Zoom, but if, if you're getting a move that's going like this, and the first thing you do as a tackle is you open your hip and your knee rolls over your shoe, now your weight is distributed too far this way, and you're not able to gain the ground that you need to go to the inside. And then you're never gonna be able to react because to be able to react to a counter move going back this way, the first thing I have to do is this knee has to go all the way in here and the weight has to go back to the inside of this foot. And that just takes too much time to be able to react when a 4-4 when a defensive lineman is making a counter move on you. Oh, and, and then in reality, when you're making that move, as what your shoulders are actually going opposite of where you're going. Exactly, exactly. And, so your yep. so, shoulders a little bit opposite. So you're taking the move away with your feet. Mm -hmm. You can adjust to a counter move because your shoulders are already going in the direction just in case he counters back on you. Yep, exactly right. That's a great coaching point there, guys. Another one. Okay. Okay. When you were the tackle on the trolley side of empty protection, we call it 50 protection. Remember the protection, obviously. Okay, you got a left tackle, but you got two. How did that, did you change your set? How did you handle that situation? It depended on where. But in other words, the will linebacker is outside the defensive end. Okay, the guy is setting on the three technique or the two technique, right? But you, the guard, you guys, now you have to take two. You've got the end and you've got the will linebacker. So if the end drop, you got to take the will. If the will comes inside the B gap, you're going to take the will and let the end go. How, how would you handle that double read thing Yeah, as the tackle? So I always wanted to set with my first kick to the widest possible guy that I would have to block. 
because I always thought that I could set for the widest and then settle or react to the inside. That was no problem. But one thing I was never going to be able to do is if I set on the inside guy with like a short vertical set or like a sort of a, a steadying easy kick, I was never going to be able to accelerate if I had to go then block the widest guy. And so I was kicking. If I have two guys that I'm trawling that are both outside, I was setting on the widest guy. And then I knew that no matter how it unfolded, I could take the most dangerous of those two guys by reacting to the inside player after one or two or three kicks, depending on how it unfolded. Now notice how we've seen the field guys, he sees the field. Okay, let's change a little bit of gears here on you now and talk a little bit about the run game. Okay, if you became an offensive coordinator, okay, which I think you'd make a really good one, okay, what would be your top three runs? What would say, hey, you know, as a player, when you've been to a lot of different systems, obviously, in Cleveland. And, I mean, one time we had five different coaches in, in you know, in a seven-year period in a lot of different offenses, right? What would be your top three runs that you say, hey, I like this run, I like this run, I like this run? Uh, concepts or – because I, I would say outside zone to the tight end, outside zone to the open side, and then some variation of the outside zone with a fullback or a Y or somebody in the backfield where the combinations – like the, the blocking technique is still outside zone, but the combinations change. So, you know, instead of like a, just a normal outside zone where my guard is, is common comboing up to the front side linebacker, I would have them combo up maybe to the backside backer and put a Y or an F to try to create a, a seam in the defense where maybe the center on back, we're getting, stationary and the guys on the front side were getting them to run so whatever you would call that type of a, a play where you get the front side to run you're splitting them and you're getting the backside to stop because the combinations are going to the backside player and then you're fitting another uh, off the ball blocker up into the second level which kind of screws up the linebackers and their fits and it screws up the defensive line because they're used to just running sideways against the outside zone and all of a sudden now you're, you're, you're blocking them a little bit more vertically and the angles of the blocks are changing a little bit. So now, so from what I just understand, you like the inside zone play, you like the outside zone play, and you don't care about the third play. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, outside, like that could be your whole offense. That's, those are plays that they just fit well together. And it's nice having other plays and other concepts. Um, but if you're only going to give me three, those are the ones I would take. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about the tackle on the outside zone play. When you are on the uh, – and the guard's covered, okay, and you've got the end and he's outside of you, what was your thought process then? You know the aiming point of the back is going to be uh, – let's say there's no tight end. So okay. the point in the back is kind of like at the ghost tight end out in that area. What was your thought press on blocking that defensive end at that time? So outside play? This is where it's really important to see the defense, you know, because I want to know what are the chances they're running that pirate stunt or they're running something where my end is going to try to take me to the inside because 
when the guard is covered up, you know you're not going to get a combination help unless unless you know the blitz is coming or the stunt is coming and you can call a three or four man zone then it's a different story but if you don't have that information i still want to know what are the likelihood of this defensive end taking me to the inside because then i got to tighten up my angle a little bit but if i feel pretty good pretty comfortable that he's wide enough that i'm going to be able to get at least three steps in the ground before i'm making contact because if, I, if I'm going one, two, three, now I can react anyway on the third step. The problem is, is when I go one, two, and I've got my inside foot in the ground and he's making an inside move because then I still got to get another foot in the ground before I can push off and react. And that's where a lot of guys get beat to the inside is because they only get two feet in the ground before they see their defender make an inside move. So um, outside zone, defensive end to my side, I'm thinking about, Outside armpit is sort of where my my nose or the screws of my helmet is going to be aiming. Um, I'm going to try to use my feet where I'm going to get a little bit more depth because he's probably going to be a little wider. The angle of the back is a little bit wider, so I'm going to get a little bit more depth, but I definitely still want to get width with my first step. And then I'm going to try to get my next two steps in the ground as quickly as I possibly can because, like I said, I'm exposed when my – inside foot's in the ground. I'm okay to go either way when my outside foot's in the ground because the angle of my shoulders are such that if the defensive end continues to run upfield, I can push him wider and push him toward the sideline. If he makes an inside move, I can push off my outside foot and then I can feed him, I can wash him down inside and the back can bounce it to the outside. So I feel pretty good about that. But my screws on my helmet are aiming to that outside armpit and um, the angle of my shoulders is a little bit wider, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely aiming at that outside armpit, outside shoulder pad area. But I also want to be just a little bit cautious with my inside hand because that's what's going to save me if he makes an inside move that I don't expect. That's That inside hand being sort of that bicep area or maybe even a little bit inside of that inside bicep on the defender, that's going to kind of build in that just – little bit of margin of error when I am taking that wider angle with my helmet. Um, and then once I make contact with that guy, now I can kind of slowly work those hands in a little bit tighter to try to get leverage on that defender. Now, uh, when the, when the guy's uncovered, okay. Now, can you be a little more aggressive on that guy when you know you've got your buddy coming with you? Yeah, exactly. When I've got a double or whatever you want to call it with, with your guard and he's coming and he's protecting my inside, that's best case scenario, right? Because now I can fire off as fast and as hard as I possibly can on my angle, still the same angle, but I don't have to be as cautious with my footwork. I can get on that player a little bit faster. I can try to work in my mind. The footwork probably looks the same, but in my mind, I can think about trying to press vertically on that defender sooner and faster because I know that my buddy's coming with me to protect against any unexpected inside movement. So you're, you're actually thinking, I got the outside half of this guy. Exactly. So when, when I've got uncovered guard, outside zone, combination block, I'm thinking I am trying to blow as fast and as hard through the outside half of this defender as I possibly can because – if I get him to turn his shoulders and I, I don't want to whiff, but if I don't get all of him, now this defender's got his shoulders turned and I got my buddy teeing off on him and he's going to blow him off the ball. Like 
this defender's only chance to stay on the ball is if he gets super low and he somehow is able to split up the field, but he's not going to be able to do that because both me and my left guard are coming off so hard and so fast and our hips are together, but there's no way they're, they're going to be able to split that. And I'm going to be working vertically as fast as I possibly can against that defender. Is it, it it's different in, in my head and you know, how do you think about it, right? The outside zone, you want to get them to stretch. It's not, you don't even have to get them to be knocked off the ball. If you just get them a stretch, as opposed to the inside zone where you've got to get movement. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I would say that's the end result. But as, as a tackle, my mindset is a little bit different on, on the outside zone because I'm thinking where the ball is probably going to run on an outside zone. It's probably behind me. If, if my guard's uncovered, you know, the, the, the running back is still reading – a gap wider than my block, but it's probably going to come back to my block. Now it might cut behind the center still, but in an ideal situation, if I allow that running back to get his feet in the ground, basically at the line of scrimmage where my double team block on the defensive end is happening, it's going to be a positive play no matter what. And so I'm thinking if I can get this defensive end, not only stretched, but if I can get him, off the ball a little bit where now he's getting into the linebackers lap. The linebackers having a hard time playing over the top or playing to the inside. Like that's what my mentality I want it to be. Now it's up to the defender. If he's going to just panic and run wide and just run down the line of scrimmage, that's great too. But if he's trying to hold that point and he's really working hard to stay where he is, like just blowing him off the ball into the linebacker, that's what I, I want to think that's going to be the result. He can either run to the sideline and just totally avoid and make a huge hole inside, or he can try to play really tight and strong, and then we can knock him off the ball into the linebacker. That's kind of my, my philosophy, whereas when it's inside zone, I'm thinking the chances of the ball getting out to me are pretty low. And so, yes, I want to push him off the ball, but it's more important to keep him on the line of scrimmage and to not let him fall back to, to make the play when the, when the back gets cut back and up inside. So you, you know, the read spot in the back, you know, who the defenders, who he's reading. So on the outside, the back may be reading your guy. That's number one to number two, the guy that's on Joel, whoever the second guy is inside. Yeah. As soon as you know, Hey, my guy's widening. He's out here. The ball ain't going to come out here. No. Right. So I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm pretty safe as long as I keep him out here. Yeah, exactly. You just don't want a lot of penetration. Like that's obviously that's the number one thing that kills his own play is penetration. Because if the running back can't get his footwork in the ground, like you want to be, be able to get your running back to get three to five steps in the ground before he's forced to make any decision about his cut. And usually that means you're getting him back to the line of scrimmage because any deviation off of his footwork before he gets back to the line of scrimmage, it slows up the play so much that you lose the timing and the ability to get everybody on that defense running to create those natural holes for him to cut up into. How about this? Let's talk about this, which, which you probably didn't do a lot, but I'm just going to run it by you. If, and I know you probably run a counterplay in your career sometime or another while. You talk about pulling 
do you prefer skip polls versus open polls? Say you were, you were, if you had a poll and get on, uh, you're running that toss sweep or whatever that crack play where you're in bunch, okay, and the outside guys are blocking down, right? The the point guy in the bunch, number two is blocking down, the outside guy is blocking on and down, right? Right. The the inside guy, right? He's pulling full of force, and now you're pulling for the alley player, okay? What technique would you use in that? Would you skip pull that? Would you just open pull that? How would you do that? So I always learned the open pull, and I was always a guy that had pretty loose hips. I was I had good mobility in my hip, and so to open and pull was not hard for me. And so the skip pull didn't even really start to become popular until like, I think I was in the NFL already. So I'd already had the open pull and grain in me. So it was no problem. So that's just what I did. I never skip pulled in my career. Um, and so I think teaching young players, if I had like a full roster of college kids that hadn't played offensive line before, I'd probably just teach them skip pull because it's easier. And for guys that have tighter hips, it's easier to learn. So in general, I would probably favor teaching skip pull. But if, if a guy was very mobile and he liked the open pull and he'd done it before, I wouldn't try to change him. Because I don't think there's any – there's not any real benefit to doing one over the other except for what fits your body type better. And I don't know if anybody has been learning skip pull from day one – if you can open pull faster than you can skip pull, or you can do it better than skip pulling because skip pulling keeps you square and it gets you out of your stance pretty quick. I always thought just a, a coaching point, what you think about it. I always, if you skip pull, you can get away from the penetration because if you got receivers trying to block down on that defensive end, God, there's going to be penetration. You're going to get away from that. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of balance. Like when you're talking about that toss crack play, like, as the tackle that's pulling, it takes a lot of balance to pivot on your inside foot and to drop your outside foot for depth and width to be able to get around all of that mess and to get into your sprint to be able to get around that. And then now I got to turn my shoulders again as I'm running full speed to kind of find my targets to the inside. Like I had done it so much at Wisconsin because that was a big part of our scheme that I was comfortable doing it, but it's not something that's, easier very natural and definitely skip pulling makes it a lot easier okay when running the wide zone toward you okay where are your keys to success where we went over that uh did you count the steps and reach Barkley? how did you handle the defensive end crossing your face movement okay on his own plays we talked about that i'm just reading off my notes here when i that i sent you okay now let's talk about uh, when you're doubling with the offensive guard on the backside of zone plays, okay, what keys did you have with your footwork? And what did you use? So let's just talk. Let's talk about the outside zone play, okay? Going to the right, you know, left tackle and guard. Joel's covered. The guard's covered with the three technique, and you got the backer, okay? So what was your thought process when you uh, ran that double team block, okay, and the backer? but it was the outside play as opposed when you ran the double team block to that same look, yeah. the inside play. So the outside play first. I'll start with the outside play. So the outside play is a little bit different because I'm thinking in my mind, I want to run to cut 
that player because the best thing you can do when you're running the outside zone is get cuts on the backside, right? Because then that really splits the defense in half because now you got defensive linemen trying to jump over each other to maintain their spacing down the line of scrimmage. It doesn't work so well. So I was always thinking inside foot, I was dropping and trying to gain as much depth and width as I possibly could. It was up to my guard to slow that defensive tackle down with his hand. Like he couldn't just run and avoid because then I wasn't going to be able to get that player. So I would tighten my split down a little bit without making it obvious. I would take a first step for depth and width. My second step was almost crossing over. And then I was trying to get my third step in the ground as fast as I possibly could so that I could now run down the line of scrimmage, but also try to gain ground and get up into that defensive tackle because you can't cut a defensive tackle until you get up into him and then you can go low and cut him. If you're away from him and he has space and you try to cut him, he's going to defend the cut every single time. So I was always thinking, tighten my split, first step, depth, width, crossover, get my third step in the ground as fast as I possibly could. And then I was trying to take my backside arm and fist and trying to turn it and get low so that I could either rip cut off and then I could either hook him if I had to, to be able to pull him back onto me and then start working back up the field. Or if I could get where I felt like I could cut the guy, get up into his pads and then go low and cut the guy. But I always wanted to, the last thing I would think about is trying to get that backside arm through and rip up and into that defensive tackle. Cause that's what would save me if he was a little bit ahead of me. It was that backside arm. Cause I could kind of hook him. The refs don't really see that very much. So I could kind of hook him with that, with that backside arm when I was turning and running with him. And then I could kind of pull him back onto me as the blocker um, to get back in the proper orientation that defensive tackle okay now uh i've also saw you use a technique where you kind of grabbed your grabbed that guy and pulled yourself through that guy but the but you were on the other side of him you know what i mean you were yeah, reach around so if you were playing against a guy like you know you know atkins or aaron donald like one of these guys that's just super fast up the field and no matter what you do i mean they're running forward as fast as they can, they're already faster than you. And you're trying to drop step and open up and cross over. And it's really difficult to get out of them. So in that case, a lot of times what I would do, I would take the same footwork, but if, if I open up and now he's already ahead of me, I mean, there's no way I'm going to be able to lose enough ground to get around him. So in that case, what I would do is, you know, a lot of people call it the slingshot or the reach around where you just grab on either side of their hip and you just pull them real quickly as fast as you possibly can. And then now you work from the upfield side to just cut them off with your body. So you're basically just kind of boxing them out. So it's, it's open crossover. Now you're just giving them a quick little tug. And then now you can kind of work around that side. And then you can just kind of body block them and give your running back enough space to be able to get into that B gap and get up the field. And never got called for over. I never did that's right. Go now, do the same block, Joe, the thought process when the not a ball carrier, right? He's making, he's running the inside zone play. And whether it's the tight inside zone play where he's running at the guard or the mid zone play where he's running at the inside leg at a tackle, what's your thought process on the B block on the backside with you and the guard to that three technique to the back? Yeah. 
So in this case, I'm assuming the ball is probably going to come behind the block with me in the guard in this case. More times than not, when you see a successful inside zone, the ball comes behind the B block. And so in that case, I don't have to take as deep of a drop step. I don't have to cross over with my second step because the double team is trying to work vertically, really. So in that case, my thought process and the things that I would cue in my head would be, first of all, it's the guard is really important in this case. Like he needs to get his first step in the ground. His second step needs to be up and he needs to lift whether he's, he's using his hand like this or he's using his flipper. He needs to lift the shoulder pads of the defensive lineman just a little bit. And then what I was trying to do was stay as low as I possibly can. I mean, I was, when I was in my stance, I wasn't getting any higher than my stance when I was running a backside inside zone B block. And so I was taking my first step. My second step um, was up the field. I was kind of, I forget exactly where I was aiming, but roughly like where the defensive lineman's hand was in the ground, somewhere in there. That was kind of where I was aiming with my second step. My third step was getting me to square. And then the, the most important thing that I haven't heard a lot of people ever talk about, but I would always tell the guys on our team is like, when you're B blocking in the backside, your helmet needs to be in the crease where the guard and the defensive tackles body meet. So if you can imagine that crease where the guard and the defensive tackles body is, you want your helmet to go right down that crease. So you, the screws of your face mask are going right into that crease. And then here's the important part. You're taking your hands and the hands need to be below the hands of the defensive tackle. If my hands are above the defensive tackle, he's just going to turn and he's going to lift up with my hands and he's going to stop that double team. He's going to split that double team. If my hands are underneath his hands, he's going to use his hands like this. And then now my hands are underneath. Now I'm able to lift and to pick up his body, his core with the, with my hands. And then now I'm able to connect to his body and to use the leverage that I'm building through my ankles, knees, and hips to be able to move that player off the ball. And I think I was not a huge tackle. Joel was a bigger guard, but he wasn't 350. But we had some of the best B blocks I've ever seen blowing guys off the ball just because of the technique that he would use where he would lift the shoulder pads of the defensive tackle. I would put my face mask right in the crease. I would get my feet up into the block and I would make sure my hands were underneath the hands of the defensive tackle. And then you could take that guy for the ride of his life, five, six yards down the field. Now, the, the, the uh, alignment of the back, does that make a difference? So if the back was behind the quarterback at home, let's say he's at home, and you're running the inside zone play. Now, you know, all the teams, the quarterback gets in the gun, right? The back's offset to your side, right? They still want to run the inside zone play where he's running over the center. Okay, someplace over the center. Okay, would that change the technique that you guys use on that B block on the backside or not? Because of where the back was entering the line of scrimmage. I did not like running zone from the gun because the back is getting the ball in a different place and he's making his cuts differently and it limits the back's ability to hit any hole on the offensive line. Um, if you're on the front side, it sucks because now the defensive end can make an inside move and he has 
no downside because when the back is offset, it's too far for him to go to bounce it to the outside. So now automatically now the defensive end knows he can take the inside move and there's, it's no harm to him. So I have a harder job getting him to move and stretch on the front side already because he doesn't have to worry about his gap on the back side. It stinks because the running back almost is never able to get his shoulders all the way back to square to be able to hit the backside cutback. And so he's always kind of running with a little bit of an angle to his shoulders and he's behind the blocks. So where you're used to having the running back in the backfield and he's starting his, his footwork and he's getting up into the line of scrimmage and then he can kind of choose wherever he wants to go. He's in the right uh, alignment or I can't think of the word right now, but he, he's, he's the right distance from everybody in the right spot to be able to make those cuts. Whereas when he's coming from offset, like by the time he gets up into the line of scrimmage, all those defensive linemen can just fall back and easily make the play. So whenever we were running from the gun zone plays, which I didn't like, I'd much rather prefer the pistol. It's because the best zone running teams don't really do a lot of zone from gun because it just limits you what you can do. Um, but when we were running those plays from the gun, I would think like the ball is coming back to the D block. So you'd almost have to be a little bit more vertical and be ready to go chase a linebacker that's running back over the top. Now talk about the double team. Okay. Talk about the double team when you, uh, on the front side, there's somewhere in your career, we used to run an open end counter play. Okay. And you had a double the three technique to the backside linebacker. Okay. Talk about your, what would, what was your thought process in the, in the techniques that you and the God would use? Okay. Uh, let's just say it's a three technique to that side or, and then a two technique. Then we went, went from a three to a two. Okay. And then a one. So the defense alignment is in three different spots. You're running a counterplay to you, maybe to the open end, whatever you call that play. Okay. Well, well that, that block is very similar to a B block. The, the difference is your first step. So on a B block, your first step is depth and width because you're going to put your nose or the screws in your helmet, like I talked about, into that seam where the defensive tackle and the guard are meeting. Um, and there's a chance that you're going to have to take that defensive tackle and the linebacker is going to run over the top and the ball stays inside. And you, you need to be able to get your helmet to the inside of that defensive tackle. There's a chance that could happen. So that's why your footwork needs to be a little bit more first step depth with second step, not a crossover, but you need to be able to get a little bit more to the inside. When you're running like a deuce block or any of those gap schemes, where now this is a double team on the front side, your first step as an offensive tackle is actually up and in. And your second step is kind of the same spot. Your third step, is up and in again. And the key to this play is similar to the B block where you wanna think about getting your hands under the defensive tackles hands. In this case, I'm trying to get my hands under the defensive tackles hands again. And it's up to my guard to use the top of his shoulder pad or his flipper or his hands, whatever you teach to be able to lift that defensive tackles shoulder pads just a little bit so I can get up underneath and we can get hip to hip now. And both of us are taking 
half of the man to try to move him back off the line of scrimmage before we decide who gets off on the linebacker. Whereas a B block, I'm taking two thirds of the man and the guard is taking one third of the man. With a deuce block on the front side, it's truly about a half and half double team. And now when that defensive tackle is in a two technique, I'm thinking more footwork the same, but I'm thinking I'm probably going to have to hit the hip of this defensive tackle. And when I say hit the hip, I don't mean hit the hip with my hands. I mean hit the hip with my shoulder pads. So I want to say so low when I'm coming down on that deuce block that as the guard engages that two technique, well, he'll probably use hands instead of shoulder pads when you're using uh, when you're blocking a two technique as a guard. I'm thinking he's going to engage that two technique with his hands, and I'm coming down with my shoulder pads, and I'm so low with the same footwork as a, a deuce when there's a three technique, but I'm taking that shoulder pad, and I'm actually hitting the hip. I'm hitting this part right here. I'm not hitting the midsection. I'm not hitting the ribs. I'm hitting that point of that hip on that defensive tackle because that's what will move. If I hit him up here, he's not going to move. If I hit him down here, I don't care if it's Mad Mountain Dean. I'm going to hit him right here, and I'm going to get him to move. And I'm hitting him right here with this part of my shoulder pad, and I'm going like this, and I'm actually almost just shucking him to the side because I'm trying to define that read for the running back, and I'm trying to make sure that I knock that two technique into a one technique so the guard can take him all the way over, and I can get up to that linebacker. Now, if he's a one technique, I'm doing everything exactly the same in case he plays out at all or in case he plays up enough head up on that guard where I can hit something on the way through to the linebacker. But a lot of times if they're on that one technique, he might end up in that A gap where I come down and I'm looking to hit the hip, but there's nothing to hit. And then I just go up to the linebacker. So your eyes are inside just in case the nose was coming back to end up on the nose, right? Yeah. Yeah, obviously your, your rules still apply in these situations like gap blocking and you take care of that inside gap first. And my eyes are always to, all right, is there anybody coming from the inside on the first level? Once I know there's no nose coming back, once I know there's no goofy inside games, now I'm going to work my way up to the second level. It's important in, too on the front side of gap schemes that you're not crossing over because there's always that case where my first step is down because I have to be responsible for my inside gap for that two technique for the one technique, if they play out, but if they go away hard and nobody comes back, now I may have to step back out on my second step to help the tight end. If he's got a defensive end that's playing to his inside, if they're running some type of uh, game or blitz to this side, where now I'm, I'm going from what I thought was a deuce and I'm hitting a tray on the run, where I'm going from first step is a deuce. Okay, boom, second step goes back to a trade because now I've got a guy in the C gap and I need to help that tight end. I need to secure that before I get off to the linebacker. Okay. Now, so you is it fair to say that you, you never want your outside leg to get ahead of your inside leg? Um, outside leg gets ahead of your inside foot, right? Then you lock your hip and you can't step back. So your inside foot is always the high foot and your other foot so you can step where you needed to go with the next step. So the way I would think about it actually is my, my inside foot is up and in. My second foot actually is going to come a little bit in front. So my, my outside foot actually is going to come a little bit in front, but it's only about two inches. It's, it's very, very insignificant um, because you don't want to be 
like you said, with a lock. Exactly. You don't want to turn your shoulders because you got to be ready to be able to come out and help turn it into a tray with the tight end. So if, if that means your feet are almost even or maybe your outside foot is about two inches ahead of your inside foot, maybe, maybe that's kind of what I would be thinking. But certainly you don't want it way in front where your shoulders turn because you definitely want those shoulders square. And the only reason one foot is in front of the other is because it gives you a little bit more base to push off of um, in your feet. Because if your feet are just perfectly even, you don't have um, as much ability to kind of move side to side and forward and back and you create that leverage and power that you need. Now, what are you thinking on the backside back of you? You've checked the defensive end. You've hit the defensive end. You're on your way to the backside backer. Okay. What is you? What is the process? You want to pin them? You want to stay more square to get them to come over the top of you? Are you trying to stay square and get on the backside number? What is your thought process once you get to that guy? So this is what I always thought about that was I wanted to keep my shoulders square. It was, it's almost a little bit like man pass protection where I want my shoulders square, right? Because if my shoulders are square, he's, he's not going to be able to beat me over the top because I can always turn and run with him. If my shoulders turn, and this is why it's important to stay square on the first level with the defensive tackle, because if I turn my shoulders and now he runs over the top, it takes too much time to turn back. They're too fast. They're too good of athletes to be able to turn your shoulders this way and then turn him back if he runs over the top. So I always wanted to stay square here, but my aiming point is sort of the inside armpit or the inside number of that uh, linebacker. So if he does decide to shoot the gap, I can quickly drop my inside foot and then I can T-bone him to the inside. But because my angle is really tight, he'll never be able to beat me inside and my shoulders are square. And so if he does try to run over the top, I can easily run up to him and I don't have to drastically turn my shoulders to be able to make contact with him and push him wider than the hole. Because the way the play usually gets run is as the back comes downhill, if that will linebacker runs over the top, you're going to run him past the hole and the running back's going to cut back up and inside and hit his head on the goalpost. Right. So and so your thought process is never get, whenever let the guy beat you underneath you. You don't want him to beat you underneath. That's why you take that sharp angle to like his inside armpit, but you keep your shoulders square so that if he does decide to run over the top, he's not going to beat you over the top. Now I'm going to change gears on you one more time. Okay. You are running uh, the defensive end in a pass, normal pass protection with five-step drop protection. Okay. 60 protection, whatever it is. No, whatever it is, solid protection. Okay. That defensive end, he starts up the field, but then you know how they dip their shoulders and they start to rip and they get about that high off the ground, right? Where are you thinking that you want to hit that? How are you going to handle that? So you're kind of looking to hit that nearest point. You know, if, if he's turned like this, about the only thing that you can hit is kind of right here, right? So if he's a little bit more facing you, I, I said before that I always kind of aim for that bicep area, right? Because I thought that was pretty good. It gives you a margin of error. It gives you something to grab onto. Um, but if he keeps turning even beyond that, obviously you can't really hit the bicep anymore. So now you're aiming for like that shoulder delt area, right? So you're kind of doing one of these guys. Um, so my inside hand, obviously, 
was a little bit more towards the back of his pad, almost like his back. So I'd be aiming kind of like right here. And then my outside hand now is going to be trying to get somewhere into that chest belly area almost um, to try to get some grip to that side, but also to kind of not allow him to keep ripping up the field and to kind of force him to stop turning, right? But a lot of times you see that those guys, when they do try to rip up field, they'll end up getting like this, right? And so if you get that type of situation, now what happens is as you've got your outside hand kind of into that chest belly area, right? This inside hand, as he continues to turn his shoulders, now it's gonna slide down to that hip area because that's what's gonna give you control and to be able to leverage and push with your inside hand on his hip and to get him to widen. Because it's really difficult when a guy's that low and he's ripping that hard to get any force on his shoulders enough to get him to widen away from the quarterback. That's why that hand's kinda of gotta drop a little bit to that hip because if you're able to move the hip, it's, it's easier than moving the shoulders, but where the hip goes, the body's gonna go. So you get that hip to move enough his body's going to drift wider too. Okay, Joe. One last, one last thought that you can give all the young and old coaches as being a uh, one of the best offensive linemen ever to play the game. What one last thought that you can give everybody that's listening, and watching you? I kind of drew a curveball at you there because I yeah I, I didn't put that on the question sheet. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that like don't underestimate the power of your own brain to focus on the most tiny details in your technique. Like I always felt that when I focused on the smallest little detail, like we were talking about the outside of your foot, like picking that up and stepping and allowing that to gain ground, whatever those little cues are, like don't underestimate the ability of your mind to be able to tell your body to do very, very small and detailed movements and to think about those things and allow that to cascade into big things. Um, I think that was a big secret for me when I was learning how to pass set and run block. Like I was trying to take every tiny little detail and think about those details because even if I wasn't perfect at those little details and cues I was thinking about, a lot of times it enabled me to do the bigger picture things that made me a better player. And I'll, I'll give one more tip. Preparation. Every day that I went out to practice, I would write at the top of my notebook one thing I wanted to get better at. And a lot of times it was technique-based. It was you know, I want to roll my outside shoulder down a little bit more. I want to keep my hands a little bit tighter. And I want to keep my elbows a little bit tighter in my pass set. Like I want to keep my eyes uh, a little bit more focused in one-on-one -on -one pass rush on that inside bicep. Like it was that little thing that I wanted to work on that I knew if I got better at that thing that day, I would be a better player. I wrote that at the top of my notebook. And then when we went back and we would review the film, I would review that thing I wanted to work on. And then I would grade myself if I was able to accomplish that. And if I was able to accomplish that, great. Then I could come the very next day and write something new at the top. Oh, and I forgot to mention. So I'd write what I wanted to work on and I would write how I was gonna work on that. Like what was the mental cue that I would use to get better at that thing? And if the cue worked, 
then it was great. I could cross that off the list and I put that in the tool belt and then work on something else. If that cue didn't work to get me to be better at that one thing, then I would try a different cue the next day. And it was all about building every practice, just getting better at one thing and then building that on the next thing. And then at the end of training camp, all of a sudden you were better at 30 things and you were making less mistakes as an offensive lineman. And then at the end of 11 years, you had very, very few things that you needed to get better at because you had worked every single day with a purpose and you got better at small things along the way. That's how you become a great offensive lineman. Yo, that was absolutely awesome. That was fantastic. You know what I mean? And, and one of the most important things that you can give another person, okay, is your time. And because you never get it back. And we really appreciate your time. And what we learned from you today was just fantastic. It really is. And I thank you for your time. And I also thank you for being a friend. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for being a good friend, Bob. And thank you for having me on. It was a true pleasure. I love talking offensive line stuff because when they got me on NFL Network, they never let me talk about the big uglies. And I miss having this opportunity to share some, some knowledge. And uh, thank you again for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, they got that new thing, the, 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 the big boys club, you know, there's that new. Yeah, and I said, how can you have that? And, and not have Joe Thomas on that. How can you possibly go about that program and not have a Joe Thomas on that thing? That's crazy. I, I can't believe that. Be my agent. God bless you, Joe. Thank you. Say hello to my wife and the kids for me. Take care, pal. Will do. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, Keith. There's a ton of takeaways from that conversation with Joe Thomas and Bob Wiley, regardless of what position you coach. Uh, again, I think it's worth sharing that with your players, how you really become elite at what you do. So again, uh, we appreciate your support of all our clinics. Cool Clinic information will be released next week. Another incredible lineup headlined by John Gruden talking about what I look for when I hire an offensive line coach. We have the Super Bowl champion, college football champion, and CFL champion speaking as well. Uh, that that information look for it next week and again support Lawrence first and goal clinic kicking off today there's over 18 offensive line coaches at this one at lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com follow us on twitter at coach k grabowski for updates on all of our clinics and other things that we're doing for you this offseason